All right, so welcome to Grace on Tap. This is a podcast uh, devoted to the Lutheran Reformation, the history and the documents surrounding it. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Higley. Welcome to Grace on Tap. Today we're talking about the Sixth Commandment, and uh, we have the Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Yes, and this is this is one where I think in the last episode you mentioned, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to have to avoid the <laughs> we don't want to blush we don't want to awkwardly not want to say something because it's difficult or awkward we just want to build up this commandment the same way luther does and luther does something neat is that he rolls out this commandment uh we've got the first three commandments are relationship to god we've got the relationship of parents we have relationship to neighbor and now uh, we're still continuing to roll it up to those who are closest to us. So us. yeah, uh, just to restate that, like the first, that we talk about the first tablet, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the whole first tablet is our relationship to God. Commandments one, two, and three. Right. And then then the commandment four is the r- relationship to parents. And we had a lot of discussion on that. And then we go into the relationship with life, with people's life. And, and the relationship with generally the most precious thing that any of us have is our, our life. And then the next thing down that ladder is the, mo- the second, mo- you know, once, once we have our life secure is our spouse. It almost sounds like Maslow's primary needs or something like that. Oh, uh, yeah. Pyramid of needs. <laughs> well, one of the needs that Luther describes is family of marriage. The, the command to, you know... Uh, that Jesus gives Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, is built on the goodness of marriage. That commandment by God to Adam and Eve does not come after the fall as a concession to their their fleshy desires. You might as well get together because you're sinners. But no, in the very beginning, before any sin is in this world, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply. Right, right. Luther Luther has a, a great way of putting this here, and he says, you know, just as we are called to honor our parents, we are, and this is a quote from Luther here, uh, explicitly forbidden here to bring any disgrace upon our spouse or to bring disgrace upon our neighbor through our neighbor's spouse. So is this, this, uh, um, uh, this, you know, we, we, are, we are to honor our parents, and we're supposed to bring honor and, and avoid bringing disgrace upon the, uh, the 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 marriage our marriage or the marriages around us and in Luther's time marriage was largely seen as a protection against the vice in the world that there is sin in this world and to make sure you don't sin get married and there's some of that but in a much more positive way Luther has the confidence that marriage isn't just a way to avoid problems, but is in fact something to embrace to see how God's at work in each other. You know, one of the interesting things that uh, I've been hearing a lot about uh, is how in the past, oh, I'm going to say 50 years or so, prior to like in the early part of the 20th century, marriage was was really sort of along the lines of what you just mentioned, where it was a, a bulwark against sin. And starting in the the '60s and, and beyond, uh, there's been where you know marriage no longer serves culturally, no longer serves that purpose, it, and and marriage has transitioned to this expectation of 
you know, I'm looking for my soulmate. I'm looking for perfection. I'm looking for the person that makes me happy. Right. And, and, and so it's, it's no, you know, by removing, by, uh, and there's nothing wrong with soulmates and, and being unbelievably happy in marriage. But, you know, the Luther's view of marriage that we're going to go into here is much more practical, much more pragmatic, much more, he sets his sights much lower than, than the perfect soulmate type of thing. He's, yes. he's looking at it from a standard of, hey, you know, we all are struggling with these, these desires within us. How do we manage them properly? And, and so that's part of what we're going into here is, is going to be looking at it from that perspective. And so, you know, to, for the sake of this discussion, you know, let's try and just look at it from that perspective. And it's probably not a bad way to start out. You know, I mean, you know, to, to look at marriage as something that's more that there is. a, And even in the in our search for the perfect marriage, in our search for the the uh, the, the soulmate, you know, there's certainly this foundation of of this practical side of marriage, of having somebody there that we're with on, without having all these unbelievable expectations on each other. Talking about foundation, just uh, Luther will point out that the foundation for marriage is found even in the fourth commandment, is honor your mother and father, is this understanding that you are coming from a family, you are coming from a marriage, and as much as you came from a marriage, uh, you are going to continue into this world, world through marriage or through the opportunity to support others in their marriages. Uh, one thing to think about as we're talking about this uh, explanation in the large catechism of the Sixth Commandment is this is written four years after Martin Luther got married. I did not know that. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so, you know, he lived as a monk, lived on his own, uh, but then in the Reformation, uh, their monasteries and convents are collapsing, and so the the women that were living in the convents uh, for their, their care, their protection, and their love and embrace are finding men uh, in Wittenberg. Luther became kind of a matchmaker. Um, but then there was one, Katie Von Bora, that uh, wouldn't go with anybody else about him. Yeah, she, from my, my wife was, has been fascinated with Katie. And uh, she's bought books on her. There's not a whole lot written no. about CPH, Katie. CPH, uh, Concordia Publishing House, just last year. Uh, released a new biography of her. She's a fascinating person, um, and and she either wanted to marry a, a some aristocrat, some very wealthy person, or Martin Luther. She wasn't going to have anything less. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know it was funny. Uh, Luther, in his, when he discussed his marriage with Katie, he uh, he talked about it in terms of you know well I'm doing this to make a point about marriage and. It was all this theological stuff, uh, but I never, you know, they had one one of the happiest marriages mm-hmm. uh, in Christian. Uh, the the traditional. Uh, my wife actually bought a book on on famous Christian marriages, and they went through. And this guy, you know, had uh, these problems, and they went off, and they sort of had two separate lives, and this one had two separate lives. And they got involved with their missions or whatever. Luther and Katie had a remarkably healthy and happy marriage right from the start. So in Germany in June, uh, the celebration of marriage happens 
uh, throughout the country around uh, the anniversary of their marriage. I did not know that. And so there's festivals like in Wittenberg and other places uh, in recognition of Martin and Katie's marriage. And it's not just that they're historically looking back at one person's marriage, but they use that then as a launching point to celebrate marriage still today. So now we're going back to the fourth commandment. And in paragraph uh, 202, Martin Luther identifies two levels of concern about marriage. One is for the self, that, quote, not only is the external act forbidden, that is adultery, but also every kind of cause, incitement, and means, so that the heart, the lips, and the whole body may be chaste and afford no opportunity, help, or persuasion to unchastity. And then Luther continues uh, for the neighbor. He says, we are responsible to make that we also make resistance, afford protection and rescue wherever there is danger and need. And again, that we give help and counsel so as to maintain our neighbor's honor. And, you know, this is something Luther wrote. And when I read that, and I, you know, when I read that, one of the things that jumped out at me was, you know, there has to be some some boundaries around our responsibility to in this particular area uh, to around our responsibility to our neighbor. And I'm, I'm thinking about the tendency of people uh, to, to sort of off offload or to to outsource their own sinfulness. So they will what they'll do is. They'll say, oh, I find, you know, you attractive, you need to wear a burqa, you know, or yeah. something along those lines. This, this outsourcing of our own sinful desires and, and forcing or demanding that somebody else take responsibility for that. So the I, have expectation, a, I have a problem with that. Yeah, so the expectation for chastity uh, and maintaining honor gets entirely offloaded in our society from the man and instead is becomes the responsibility of the woman. Right. And that's unfair. That's totally unfair. And, and that's not quite what he is saying, because Luther will point out that we are to make resistance, provide protection, provide rescue, wherever there's danger and need. That means I, I don't need to create a false danger or a false need that I need to hide you because you're so attractive and I need to pretend I don't see you. That danger and need is not on them. That danger and need is on me, and I need to then seek counsel and help for myself, not for what they're doing, but for what my thoughts are taking me to. Or another way to think about it is the direction I give to somebody else about chastity is about their honor, not about protecting my sin, protecting myself from my sin. I, I want to find a way to lift up my neighbor in their honor and in their integrity as a person and, and not offload my own um, lost and, and make it sound like they're just an object that I need to hide away from. I, I want in anything I do to think, how can I make sure I keep them as a person, keep them as someone has honor. And, uh, it, but there is this challenge always about, uh, chastity. And, uh, I am a, in a way really thankful in this kind of day and age that I am. And I have two boys and not girls that I'm trying to navigate. But even as I say that out loud, say that out loud, I recognize that there's an incredible responsibility on the parents of boys to make sure that they're raised to understand what honor looks like and what integrity looks like. One of the things I really that you you know that really I liked that you brought up just now was highlighting the term danger, uh, because there is a made there's a huge difference between you know. 
danger is a, is a strong word compared you know? to artificial danger and the uh, yeah. real danger. Yeah, it's it's almost like you know one of the things that politicians will sometimes do is create a crisis so that they can you know oh now you need to do this oh now you need to do that you know and, and this this creation of a crisis is is a is a dangerous way of of managing things and and so you know, we, we really do need to be cognizant of that moment when, when there is true danger and, and, you know, how somebody dresses when they're, you know, is not dangerous. You know, that's, yeah. that's not, that's not dangerous. There, there are other things that are dangerous um, and that we, we do have to watch out for. So let's, let's look at the Old Testament and how idolatry is often equated with adultery. And they both speak to this challenge of placing our trust, our confidence, or our, our, our security in something other than God. And so uh, if we worship money, for example, we are placing God, a real person, below the object of money. Right. If we engage in adultery, we're treating somebody in this triangle of a, a husband and a wife and, and the, the other as an object so yeah so someplace in that let's say uh, uh let's say they have a husband and wife and they're and they're and we'll say the husband you know just mm-hmm. whatever doesn't matter which one but yes. the husband takes a is, commits adultery has a relationship with somebody else now what that husband is doing at that moment is he is either treating his wife as an object like the ball and chain or some or, or he is treating this woman that he is having the affair with as an object just to, you know, get his, you know, uh, somehow ex- the excitement of like a roller coaster ride or something. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, you know, so, so somebody in that triangle is being treated as an object. And, and so there's this, and, and like you were saying, in the Old Testament, God is always saying that idolatry is 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 also treating either god is is objectifying god it's placing him below some sort of object and and so there's this this um and that's dangerous right. that that's a point of danger it so is, now going back to this conversation about say a woman in her dress that someone sees and demands that they dress differently the the question is what is the danger that's happening there is not her dress but the fact that I've just treated her as an object that needs to be hidden in this world. Right. And, and as we think of chastity, chastity is about uh, protecting, caring for, uh, uh, protecting, caring for marriage. But the best way that I can care for and protect my marriage is see my wife as a real person and not an object, but also see every other person in this world as a real person. Once I turn someone else into an object, then I can manipulate them, I can use them, and I can abuse them. But as long as I keep them as a real person, then it's much harder to commit adultery. Because now someone is uh, being hurt, someone's being abused. It's not just an object that I'm pushing or pulling, it's a person. And that's sort of what I think, you know, you know, Luther is, or 
and I don't know, Luther didn't go into the linkage between adultery and idolatry. That was, I was doing, uh, yeah. I think there was. But it's in there. It's in. It, I mean, it's certainly in the Old scripture. Testament. I mean, just the prophet Hosea himself is right. filled with that idea. And, and, and so I think that it's a very biblical way of looking at it. And, and that is the key, I think, behind the proper way to approach thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, you could almost reword it. To thou shalt not objectify others. Thou shalt not. Uh, thou shalt, you know, uh, honor the dignity of everybody. Thou shalt, you know, recognize the uh, imago dei, the the image of God in yes. everybody we uh, we come in t- contact with. And and so that is what this this thou shalt not commit adultery. At least to me, is trying to get to. Well, let's go back now to this great thing that is marriage, where uh, Luther says, therefore God has also most richly blessed this estate that is marriage above all others, and addition has bestowed on it and wrapped up in it everything in the world to the end that this estate might be well and richly provided for. Married therefore, married life therefore is no jest or presumption, but it is an excellent thing, a matter of divine seriousness. And, and what Luther is doing here is he's saying that God is richly blessing marriage to be a blessing to the whole world. Not just one part of the world, but everything in the world can spring from healthier marriages. And, and when marriages are broken and when marriages are not treated as a thing to be valued and to be nurtured, then other parts of society hurt. I think you know, just sort of launching back, you know, using that that uh, that equivalence that we had a moment ago about uh, objectification, really. And we talked about this in uh, in honor thy father and mother, and, and uh, the the way God uses the the laws, the the Ten Commandments, to teach us some greater thing. Mm-hmm. And in, in the honor thy father and mother, one of the things that we mentioned, just to go back for a moment, was that sometimes we will have a difficult mother or father, but that will be preparing us possibly to to have some to to face other challenges later in life that might be similar. To face other challenges in government or or, or society where there's someone that has asked me to do something I don't like that person. But I still find a way to honor that moment. To honor that person and to speak. Maybe maybe the time comes where we have to speak with with respect and dignity uh, to that person who isn't. So anyway, this is one of those things where in marriage, I think, we are challenged to, to really uh, recognize the image of God in this one person that you know intimately. Mm-hmm. And and it's one of the hardest things to do is to truly see that individual fully human with all the dignity and, and all the grace and, and greatness that is that is there mm-hmm. because God sees them as something wonderful. And so to see this one person as somebody who to see them as God sees them then becomes a launching point that helps us to see others. But it's the, to know one person individually and to love them regardless. Yes. And then, and then grow from that moment, from that one difficult challenge, the challenges you have going through that, 
to use that and start seeing everybody that way. It gives us the confidence, as Luther will point out, to say that marriage should not be despised nor held in disrepute, um, as is done by the blind world, uh, but it is to be regarded according to God's word. Um, we are at a good spot for a beer break. Uh, today's beer is Jackie O's Lost, Lost Marbles IPA. So this is a beer that it's from Ohio. We usually stick with uh, uh, Michigan beers, but I, I was I was down in Ohio, and uh, uh, I was at a bar at a restaurant, and I, I was telling the guy there, the, the bartender, that I was looking for a nice summer beer. This was a, a few months ago when it was still warm out, <laughs> maybe a month ago, and uh, and so he he brought this out. And it is a really, it's an, it's an IPA, and like I've said many times, IPAs tend to be too, too uh, thick for me for the summertime. But this, is, this has pineapple and papaya in it, and it really is, makes it a lot lighter. It makes it a, a great summertime beer. So this is uh, the comment from Jackie O's, the brewery in Athens, Ohio. It says, this hazy, fruity, intensely tropical beer takes Amarillo hops to a new level. An orange glow to match the can. Lost Marbles presents aromas of bright citrus, sweet papaya, and mango. And enjoy flavors of refreshing pineapple and juicy orange with a hint of papaya. The Pilio... What? Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And the pillowiest of mouthfeels to keep yourself... I have never... Heard a beer described as a pillow in the mouth. I, I feel know. like if I had a pillow in the mouth, I'd be waking up and trying to punch somebody. But the review says it is like a pillow in the mouth. The pillowiest. Pillowiest. Not just your average pillow, but the best pillow there could be in your mouth. So usually what happens is we, we do our research on the beers beforehand and we read through this stuff. But We're this ready. one sort of surprised us. That one surprised us. The pillowist. That's, that, that's just a strange description for a beer. Oh my goodness. All right, so a little bit about Jack Eos. Uh, founded in 2005 by Art Ostrucky and Brad Clark in... Uh, Athens, Ohio, uh, they were in a building that had been um, Ohuli's Irish Pub, and then Art's mother is Jackie, so they called it Jackie O. And then in 2013, they moved to a different building, their primary production facility, and then in 2017, they added a room for their sours. So this is uh, Athens, Ohio. I had to look it up on the on, on Google Maps. It's a, almost 200 miles south of Cleveland, so it's it's a little bit of a hike. Uh, not a day trip for us. N- not a day trip for us. But uh, I'll tell you, this is you know I, I like I, I I'm really enjoying this beer. This is this is uh, this is a nice one. I, I enjoyed it at the bar. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad uh, you saved one for us. I, I did. I, I had to bring one back. So. Prost. Prost. So returning back to the Sixth Commandment, Luther's first thing that he wants to establish is that we should not despise or hold in disrepute marriage. The second thing he wants to say is not only is it honorable, but it is necessary. It's commanded by God. It is the condition by which our world continues uh, from one generation to the next is the idea with mother and father. We we then have children, and the children have children. Yeah. So, 
So I'm going to have this quote from Luther, uh, for where nature has its course, and then basically the, just a, he's, he's taken some, some swipes at celibacy and the, the, the monks of the day. He calls it the popish rabble, priests, monks, and nuns that resist God's order and commandment. There yes. we go. So uh, for where nature has its course as it is implanted by God, it is not possible to remain chaste without marriage. For flesh and blood remain flesh and blood, and the natural inclination and excitement have their course without let or hindrance, as everybody sees and feels. And that, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, that the, um, now, uh, you know, I, I know I know many priests. Uh, I come from a Catholic family. I have priests in my family. Um, I, I honestly have never broached this subject with them, uh, with my, my priest friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so what's celib- celibacy like, you know? Uh, and I, I, partly because I, I would expect to not get a great answer. That it's hard or it's difficult? Yeah. Or it might be a superficial answer of, like, well, I'm gifted by God for this. I'll be fine, Mike. That's what I would expect. Yes. I, I, you know, I, I, there's some times where you, you like, I know I'm not going to get a good answer, so I'm not even going to ask the mm-hmm. question. And this is one of those, those areas. And, you know, it's really good to read Luther here because... He knew a lot of priests. He knew both sides. He knew what it meant to be in the, the vows of celibacy as a monk. And he knew what it meant to be to be in the joy and the privileges of marriage. And here's what he writes. I think this is self-revelatory about his experience of his vow of celeb- celibacy. And he says, in short, even though they abstain from the act, their hearts are so full of unchaste thoughts and evil lusts that there is a continual burning and secret suffering which can be avoided by the married life. Therefore, all vows of chastity out of the married state are condemned by this commandment, and free permission is granted. Yea, even the command is given to all the poor and snared consciences which have been deceived by their monastic vows to abandon the unchaste state and enter the married life. So he says the sixth commandment gives permission to anyone that has made a vow of celibacy to abandon that vow and enter into marriage. And basically, we're going back to when we started this discussion. One of the things we talked about was the uh, the, uh, the the more pragmatic view of marriage. That this is something that that, that you know, the soulmate thing. Set that aside for a moment. There's this, which is very practical, very pragmatic. You know that we we have these desires within us, and and there is a a, a way to manage them given by God. And so we have this, the, and that's basically what Luther is saying, is that, you know, these people who, in their, I'm going to say, using Luther's way of looking at it, is their, their arrogance, mm-hmm. that they can, they can stand, you know, they can overcome unchaste thoughts by their own discipline or whatever. Luther's saying, you know what what basically all those unchaste thoughts that are coming into your head all the time they're driving you to marriage they're driving you to they're they're telling you give up this life and go and get married instead of drowning get into the boat yeah uh instead of drowning in the temptations of the unchaste life that you're trying to live but not able to get into the boat get into marriage and and see what god has given you now then Luther starts to begin his conclusion, um, and he says that this commandment demands not only that we live chastely in thought, word, and deed, but that in the estate of matrimony, we're to 
Now, this is where he gets maybe sappy. Okay. <laughs> but he says that we should love and esteem the spouse given to us by God. And then he talks about how chastity in marriage is easiest to do when there's harmony. And uh, well, that, that would and be the, true, right? It's easier to be chaste within our marriage vows uh, when we are getting along. And that gets back to what we were saying a few minutes ago, which is that that marriage is the institution where we are challenged to truly look at somebody in all their sinfulness and try to see them as God sees them. And, and, and so that, that gives us that launching point of love, even with our brokenness. And so when he goes to love and esteem, he does not then go to some domination, subordination, and orders of creation kind of thing. He just simply says harmony. He says love and esteem, that the man and wife must by all means live together in love and harmony, that one would cherish the other from the heart and with entire fidelity. I think that Luther has great confidence that within marriage, we aren't pushed down by the other. In marriage, we aren't... Uh, forced into something by the other. In marriage, we have uh, a mutualness, uh, uh, an embrace with one another that is just wonderful. I think in his description of love and esteem as living together in love and harmony, we're getting a window into what he seeks to do with Katie. And then he continues and he says, for that is one of the principal points which enkindle love and desire of chastity, so that where this is found, chastity will follow as a matter of course without any command. Without command. And that's sort of what, you know, that gets back to objectification. If, if, if we truly see this person that we are married to as a full individual. Then you're not commanded to love her. You, you want to. Yeah, you want to. And, 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 or, or him, you know. Yeah. And, and, and so... So you, you give yourself over to this person and, and you don't, you cannot even imagine objectifying them and, and calling you know, the ball and chain and all the other terminology that is sort of jokingly thrown around. And I think this is kind of the move then between, say, the first use of the law where the law curbs our gross moral misbehavior. If someone is objectifying someone else and, and they're sinfully, in an unchaste way, objectifying a person, I'm going to command them to stop. Right. I'm gonna, because I, I want them to yeah. not go into worse, gross, moral misbehavior. But on the other hand, when someone is living with the joy and the love and the embrace of Christ in their heart, and they want to know what does it look like to love their spouse, it's not a command I give them. It's an invitation to, to love, to esteem, to find harmony. And so that's kind of that, that line between the first use of the law and the third use of the law that uh, will come up later as we talk about the formula of concord. So one of the things, uh, referencing St. Paul in Ephesians 5, he talks about wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. You know, one of the things I've heard pastors talk about is how uh, women, the, the wives have this one line, and, but the husbands have a paragraph. You know, and and uh, the, the challenge of loving as Christ loves the church yeah, the, the husband in Ephesians 5 is given this, this great big challenge of to love the wife, to honor her, to lift her up just as Christ lifts up and honors the church. And, and so Luther finishes up by pointing out that it is far greater good work for a husband to love his wife and for a wife to love her husband than all the good works that had no bi biblical basis 
but were so popular in the medieval church. And he spends a lot of, as always, he ta- he's always talking about how, how these, and this is one of the things, as I've said many times, I, I used to be Catholic, and one of the things I love about being Lutheran is the, the uh, uh, just the everydayness, the everyday uh, good works that we do and recognizing the how wonderful these simple things that we take for granted are and it's almost like i'm not possibly getting overly theological here but it's almost like uh the uh the incarnation you know yes you, you have you have this baby and it's it's god incarnate you know you have this this simple thing that nobody thinks much of but it's it's this unbelievably great thing and and the Luther is always uncovering these unbelievably great things in our everyday life. And An opportunity to love and care for, esteem and lift up and honor our neighbor uh, as uh, someone who has been loved by God as well. Right. And, and marriage, uh, a necessary and wonderful way that we get to do that in this world as we uh, here honor your father and mother, uh, protect life now in the sixth commandment honor and protect this institution of marriage because through it, God is blessing others. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you very much for listening to Grace on Tap. A a blush-free version of Grace on Tap. (laughs) Yes, it was. Uh, We will continue our conversation through the large catechism, uh, getting to the seventh commandment in our next episode. You can find us at graceontap-podcast.com. That's a blog where we post each new episode. Uh, Sometimes put some listener notes or some references to documents that we're referring to. And then you can also find us on the Facebook uh, page that we have, Grace on Tap. It will be easy to find as you go in the search bar. I've shared with some people during this uh, last couple weeks uh, about the podcast. And I'll say, you can find us. And he goes, are you on Spotify? And I go, I don't know. Let's look. And we were. Hooray. Hooray. Have (laughs) a wonderful day, everybody. Prost. Prost. Prost.